In a history-making week in Paris, it was Rafael Nadal who conquered his 1,000th match win on the ATP Tour. But at the same event, the negative press further surrounded Alexander Zverev amidst more allegations of domestic abuse by his ex-girlfriend, Olya Sharapova. It's a pretty tough week for Zverev and for Sharapova, and we'll dive into that here on Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo, and joining me today, as always, is Joel Frucci. Joel, how are you, mate? Going very well, Val. Just looking out my window, it's nice and sunny here in Melbourne, and um, yeah, another day of zero, a big donut of uh, COVID-19 cases. So the summer of tennis is looking really good for, for us here in Melbourne, and we're going to speak to Scott Spitz from The Age about that later. He wrote a, a piece uh, on that, so really keen to chat to him. But of course, the big story really was, or continues to be rather, around uh, Alexander Zverev, and uh, of course, uh, Ben Rothenberg from The New York Times wrote a really, really harrowing piece uh, about uh, Olya Sharapova's story, and we're going to chat to him later, and I'm really, really interested to cross over to him in uh, DC later on. Yes, very excited for that. And as you said, yep, Scott Spitz as well from The Age here in Melbourne will join us to chat about his chat with Craig Tiley about what we can expect about the Australian summer coming up. Could we be seeing more matches and maybe the entire summer in Melbourne? We don't know. But I think the big story of the week, Joel, is Alexander Zverev and and the further allegations made by Olya Sharapova um, of domestic violence and some of the things that, um, that, that... he allegedly did to her and it's quite wretched in when reading the article on racket magazine and we'll put that um, link out on our social media platforms a bit later as well just to um, for our listeners to to read over it because Ben Rothenberg's piece in the interview was amazing and and just the I don't know the sheer disbelief that I had reading it I was I was it was pretty unbelievable and geez looking at uh, he tried to what did he do? He he sat on her head um, while um, putting a pillowcase over it, shoved her into the wall. Tried to. Yeah, exactly. Um, punch her or punch her in the face, um, allegedly anyway. And pardon, sorry. Confiscated her passport as well. Exactly. Took that away. Um, pretty much had her running out of her New York hotel room um, with no shoes on, and um, she had to contact a friend to come pick her up, eventually continue back with him. But when they went to Geneva for the Labor Cup, things escalated even more and it even resulted in a suicide attempt by Sharapova, which is terrible. But I think the thing that, and both you and I are in the same boat here, the thing that I think irritated both of us is how brash Zverev has been to these allegations and how arrogant, I guess, he's kind of been. And uh, what he said after the Paris final in his um, in his runner-up speech, so Daniel Medvedev conquered him in three sets, but um, Zverev, after the final, I know that there's going to be a lot of people right now that are trying to wipe a smile off my face, but under this mask, I'm smiling brightly. I feel incredible on court. Everything is great in my life. Those people who are trying can keep trying. Now, um, supposedly directed at Daniel Medvedev's wife, who is supposedly a friend of uh, Olya Sharapova and... Um, Look, this isn't this isn't right. Um, for, and look, Zverev is copying a lot of abuse on social media. And if this is true, rightly so. We like obviously there will be an investigation pending. I'm sure um, from what's happened, and we'll get to the bottom of uh, of the truth. And uh, I think that's what everybody is really eagerly awaiting. But with, with the vivid the vivid description and the screenshots that were provided in this Racket Magazine article, it's hard to doubt that this that this isn't true. It's very hard to doubt. Yeah, well, I think 
everyone should be believing her in the first place in any case. But the evidence that's being presented by Olya Sharapova is, is quite compelling, I think. And the one that really stood out in, in Ben's piece on Racket Magvale was uh, the photo of, of her belongings out in the, the corridor yeah. in that New York hotel, which matches up to the carpet uh, of that particular hotel's uh, TripAdvisor site. Um, that was that was really compelling. You know, and also just how specific her detail was mm. in recounting that story. And I, I, I cannot imagine how difficult that would have been for her to, to, to retell all those details. And for anyone that hasn't read Ben's piece, and as you said, we will prompt, prompt that on, on Twitter. We'll throw, yep. throw it up there at Breakpoint Pod. Um, just uh, she did break down um, when, when she was talking uh, to Ben and, and Ben outlines that how how that that chat went and um, it was it was clearly clearly really tough for her to talk about and just the fact that she was able to remember all the specifics and tell them with such with such clarity I think just really adds another layer to, to the story and I mean during the week uh, at um, at the Paris Masters and certainly uh, after the the final when when Alex did lose against uh, Daniel Medvedev I mean what he what he said. It really just paints a picture of of a guy that just seems so out of touch with with reality and and, and dare I say arrogant. Bell. I mean, if we look at his conduct this year, especially, it's it's not a it's a horrible look for Alexander Zverev. I mean, not least domestic violence accusations, which I I, I, I can't even fathom being at the centre of. That that is just I think such yeah. such a low a low ebb to hit. But then. Obviously, it's not as bad, but we think back to Roland Garros when he played that match against Yannick Sinner and revealed later that he had COVID-like symptoms. He had all the red flags and he still played. Um, that, that, could have, that could have put the whole tournament in, in absolute jeopardy. And clearly, the players were told in that situation, if you have these symptoms, you can't play. But he played anyway. Yeah, he it's, did. It, oh, but, staggering. But the age to a job. He was part of that, and, the and then went out dancing that. afterwards. He was seen at a not like at a bar after that dancing, no social distancing at all, yeah. and not to mention his girlfriend at the time is now pregnant, and has said that she will yeah. apply for sole custody of the child. So, yeah. whilst on court things have been going really well for Zverev, a Grand Slam semi final at the Australian Open, runner up at the US Open, and then a fourth round at the French, won back to back titles in Cologne, um, and then a final in Paris. Things have been going well on court. But off yeah. court, things are just unraveling completely, and yeah, yeah. it's a disaster. It, it is a disaster, and I mean, talking, going back to the current uh, situation, his response and the fact that he's young he's he's twenty three years old, right? So he's he's still pretty young, but that is no excuse. No, his his response tells me that he he has no idea of this of the severity of this situation. That's that's what it tells me. I don't think he actually understands how. How big this is? No, he doesn't, and that's and that's the disappointing thing. This isn't this isn't something that's bigger in one country than another. It's big around the world. This is mm. this is so morbidly vile that you you can't shrug this off. You need to face it, stand up like a man, and be an adult. That's all he needs to be. And you know, I guess you can say you know, yeah, they're young, they're young, they're young. But as a tennis player, I think there's a I think you probably need to mature a little bit quicker um, because you are traveling. You do have to look after yourself. 
um, you know, this is your career and you're at the highest level of your career at such a young age. And yes, you know, young people are, you know, when they've got money, they're going to spend it. They're going to become, you know, a lot of them, you know, change a little bit. And I think Zverev might have might have done that. And I just think this just looks this looks terrible. It, it is a terrible look. And to say that in a runner-up speech and just essentially give a middle finger to all the people that are out there that are well, yeah, probably both middle fingers giving the double barrel. But um, at everybody else that's critiquing him. And I just think, you know what, this is a time, and I wrote a piece on the tennis menu um, yesterday, and you can follow them at the tennis menu on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and subscribe on their website, um, that his attitude is too brash. And I went through what Sharapova said, and then I went through Zverev's statement saying that it's not true. This is a time when I think Zverev needs to take a step back from the media, um, unless he's doing his fulfilled requirements that he must do um, before the ATP finals, which are coming up, which of course he'll be a part of with Paris. You know, you have to make a runner up speech, but keep the talk strictly to tennis. Just say, look, I'm not going to make any comment about what's going on outside and off the court. I'm here to talk tennis. I'm here to play tennis. That's it. We're going to handle all that stuff privately. You'd think that his agent, you'd think that he, his press advisor, Tony Godsick is one of his managers, teammate, which is Federer's, uh, Federer owns this company. You'd think that they're pretty good managers and that they could advise him to say, okay, look, just calm down. Don't say anything silly. Just just say you're here to talk about tennis. Don't be arrogant because it's a negative. Look, remember, Joel, Lance Armstrong, Lance Armstrong, when he was talking about his doping allegations back in the mid-2000s when he won seven Tour de France, uh, seven Tour de France in a row, he was so blatantly arrogant, Joel. He ended up calling one of the um, one of his teammates' wives a, a prostitute or something like that, or one of the doctors a prostitute, um, and and really went on some serious serious tirades about people that he was close with that started to turn on him. And look what happened. Zverev can't make that same mistake if this is true, because if it comes out that this is true and he said that, this is going to look even worse. So I think Zverev needs to close his mouth and just make sure that he's going to just play tennis, focus on tennis while he's there and handle all this stuff off the court. I I almost think I almost think the opposite in a lot of ways. Why is that? Whether whoever whoever has been advising him on this issue has not done a very good job because his statement was weak as piss, in my opinion. Um and it's not an issue that you can just keep sk- skirting around because the longer that it goes unaddressed and he's obviously gone out and said, you know, all this stuff that it's it's you know it's not it's not true it's unfounded whatever. Um, he he then kind of exacerbated it by saying what he said after uh, the Paris Masters final. Um, but essentially, there's not really a lot coming out of this Zverev camp. And the longer that it goes on, the more he's going to get asked about it. Um, and then after you look at Zverev's camp, and I wouldn't I wouldn't mind asking Ben about this later when we get to him because I know that he actually spoke a bit about this on No Challenges Remaining, the podcast that he hosts um, over the weekend. Like, where, where are the ATP in all this? Um, he has he has gone to the ATP and and asked the question of them, like, what's your, you know, what is your policy surrounding domestic violence? And um, from what I could gauge from what Ben was saying was that they don't really have anything specific. They kind of just provided him with this kind of 
ambiguous statement about conduct unbecoming to the sport, but there was really nothing specific. And then when he kind of tried to dig deeper, um, he, he there was there was nothing more to add. So, look, it's I mean for me it's look I can, I can see why they may feel sort of bound by uh, the the delicacy of the situation and and you know um, you know the rule of law or whatever we want to call it, but you know. There needs to be a communication on this. It's not just something that they can they can ignore and let it play out because the more that it plays out, the worse it's going to get for everybody. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, but look, I think that during the ATP finals, just let it focus on the tennis. Come out after the tournament's done. Don't. I don't think they can. Though. I think they need to knock it on the head now. I, I, they need to be on the front foot on this, in my opinion. Maybe do it this week then, but I, I don't know. I just reckon I reckon the I don't think he should have said what he said in Paris. It was just dumb. I think they like, and you're right. Whoever has been advising him hasn't done a good enough job because he's that's a brash statement. The statement, as you said, that he made on um on social media was weak, and it didn't really add to anything. Really, it didn't add to anything. So, look, I, I don't know. I reckon I just think he should take some time, and then come out after the tournament's done. There's no tournament. This is the last tournament of the year. Leave it for a week. See what else happens. If something major does happen, then get to an investigation after that. Because it's just... I just think it was it was such a pointless statement with one tournament to go in the year. Um, and now the press is going to be on him. So, yeah, now now what does he do? Has this, like, this is... Look, maybe does he even withdraw from the ATP finals? Is that is that well, enough? I was, yeah, I was I was just thinking that. I think look, I think I think for Alex, I think the the timing of it all actually is quite favourable to him because there's only one more tournament of the year. He could probably, I don't think he should, but I think he could probably get away with playing the year end finals and then shipping off um, off the grid somewhere mm-hmm. if that's what he plans on doing. Um, but yeah, again. You really have to you have to you have to question how this is going to be tackled. I mean, if, if I'm in his camp, if I'm in the ATP camp, this is something that you want to be on the front foot of. You yeah. don't want to be letting it simmer in the background. It's yeah. it's and and as as the saying goes, silence is complicity. You don't want that. Yep, exactly right. And the ATP does need to step in, um, and that's something that I would love to speak to Andrea Gudenzi about about their policies and, and and what they can possibly do. And look, if he's found guilty. Um, must be well. He must do jail time, um, and then suspension. It's got to happen. And um, you know, as unfortunate as that is for his career and his fans, it's the right thing. You have to like. You just have to. It's it's so unacceptable, so morbidly vile. As I said before, um, it, it's terrible. It's an evil thing to do. So hopefully, um, hopefully we can get to the bottom of this very very shortly. And we can't wait to speak to Ben about this very soon as well. But we'll move on to some positive stuff. And uh, Rafael Nadal winning his one thousandth match. Last week in Paris over good mate Feliciano Lopez, one of the best names in tennis, that one by a long way. It was a three-setter. Um, a thousand match wins, Joel. It's pretty impressive by the by the Spaniard. And um, look, we, we thought we'd uh, in honor of Rafa, we would dig into some of his uh, some of his adorable English and some of how our most favorite Rafael Nadal moments. And uh, and what's yours to start things off? Yeah, so mine happened early this year, and 
before the Australian Open, as people might remember, it feels like an absolute lifetime ago now. It really does, as we keep saying about things that happened at the start of 2020. But there was the um, the, the charity event for uh, the, the bushfires that happened in Australia, of course, that absolutely ravaged the uh, sort of southeastern portion of the country. But a number of the big-name players came out and played this, this charity event uh, on RLA. And uh, there was this great throw on uh, live TV on Channel 9 that's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, that Rafa was uh, was involved in. Um, so to save me from explaining it, let's let's go to it now. Can you throw back to James and Rebecca? What? <laughs> you, you, you say back to you, James and Rebecca. Back to you, James and Rebecca. <laughs> well that is the best throwback I've ever had. <laughs> back to you, James and Rebecca. <laughs> So good. Oh, it's, so just, good. it's just brilliant. Well, the best, oh, the, the best part of it, I reckon, Val. Um, obviously, that's a that's a video, and that's accessible on the Australian Open Twitter account. Yeah. If people have not seen the video, go and watch it because almost as good as Rafa doing that throw is Stefanos Tsitsipas laughing in the background. It's so good. <laughs> I forgot about that because he does laugh. He just starts losing it in the background just as soon as Rafa goes. What? It's just—it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, um, mine now is uh, is also a pretty recent one, only a couple of months before yours, Joel. When uh, at the ATP Finals last year, in theme with uh, with the tournament coming up next week, um, Rafa and the other seven men in the finals were asked to pronounce London stations correctly, and some of them, as we know, the English language can be a pain. Um, at the best of times, so and and you know us in the media, we still struggle with it at, at copious accounts. So um, <laughs> this is Rafa trying to pronounce the stations of where are they here? So he tries to pronounce North Greenwich, Clapham Common, Marylebone, Leicester Square, Southwark, and Holborn. So let's have a listen. North Greenwich, Clapham Common, Marylebone, Leicester Square. Southwark, Holborn. Mary Libon. Oh no, it was Marai Libon. <laughs> oh, it's just, it's just absolute gold, isn't it, Joel? <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. But yeah, of course, as much as as much as we love when when Rafa gets behind a microphone, um, just a, a crazy to think that the guy has. I mean, it's not so surprising anymore. But he has a thousand wins. Yep. What a what a what a career. Um, and of course, we know that he's the king of clay, but I think at this point we can safely say that he's one of the best ever. 100%. And he's also broken the record today or this week for most consecutive weeks inside the ATP Top 10. If you remember at the end of 2016, when he took some time off, he only slipped to ninth. Roger Federer was the unlucky one. He slipped to uh, 17th. Djokovic ended up slipping to 22 after his injury. So um, Rafael Nadal continuing his streak inside the top 10 broke Jimmy Connor's record of 789 straight weeks. Federer third on 734. In Paris last week, it was Daniel Medvedev, as we said before, over Alexander Zverev in the final. 5-7-6-4-6-1. A brilliant week for him. Caps off his third Masters 1000 title to go with his Cincinnati and Shanghai 2019 championships. Um, Sophia underway as well. The biggest upset, world number 399, Jonas Foretiek. I think I'm saying that right. 
um, defeating Murray Chilich 6-3-6-2 last night. And John Millman also through to the second round with a 6-3-6-1 win over Bulgarian Adrian Andreev and Alex Demon all seated third in that tournament. In Linz, the final uh, WTA event has kicked off with Alexander Sasanovich defeating number eight seed Bernardo Perez 6-3-6-1 in an upset last night. And Greet Minnan defeating number three seed Diana Yastremskat 6-4-6-3. But before we do get to Ben Rothenberg, Joel, the eight or the elite eight have been decided for the ATP finals in 2020. Novak Djokovic, number one, Rafael Nadal, number two, Dominic Team, three, Medvedev, four, Sitipas, five, Alexander Zverev, six, Andre Rublev gets him for the first time. He's number seven, and Diego Schwartzman, the final man to get through with his performance in Paris. So, Schwartzman, the little man, gets through. Can he do some damage? We don't know, but they're the eight that will go through. Roger Federer, of course, fifth in the rankings. He won't partake because of his knee injury, but he is practicing to come back ahead of the 2021 Australian Open. But we should get to Ben Rothenberg because we do have a big chat lined up with him. And we do have him on the line from Washington, D.C. Well, that Washington, D.C. has been the focal point of the world over the last week, over the U.S. election, with Joe Biden finally um, getting over the line over Donald Trump after an extremely long count. But it seems as though it's the right decision. And uh, Ben Rothenberg does join us, uh, journalist for the New York Times, editor of Racket Magazine and host of the wonderful podcast, No Challenges Remaining. He makes his third appearance on Breakpoint this year as one of the most popular guests that we've ever had on the show. Ben, thank you so much for joining joining us and taking some more of your time uh, to, to jump on uh, Zoom with us. How are you? I'm good. I don't know if I'm popular with your listeners or just you two or just you, Val, but I appreciate whatever, everything, whatever everything. you're expressing to me. I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> nah, there's a lot of love from uh, from Australia to, uh, to DC where you are. Um, how's things going in DC? We had a quick chat before we jumped on about um, yeah. the, the post-election uh, sort of uh, demeanor or um, the, the mood in Washington, DC. How is everybody? Well, I think that I think people sometimes from outside of, or elsewhere in the U.S. and definitely outside, maybe in the country, maybe think of D.C. as like a super like divided, like partisan city, like, like you know, half this, half this. But like Trump only got four percent of the vote here in the District of Columbia in 2016, and he only got five percent uh, in 2020. Last I saw the returns. And so that's an increase of 25 percent, granted, but it's still a very low number. Uh, so I think overall, D.C. is pretty uh, unified and pretty satisfied with the result as a populist. It was really a, a, a wild scene on Saturday to people pouring out of buildings and everything, filling the streets. It was uh, lots of horns honking and stuff. It was it was actually pretty incredible. It was like a local footy game here in Victoria, it seems. And um, yeah, <laughs> yeah it, was, it, was like, it was like everybody's favorite team won all at once in like yeah. all these different cities around the, around the country, from Philadelphia to Los Angeles to New York to Washington to yeah. Austin, Chicago. It was... It was it was wild. Yep, and the scenes... obviously a lot of people, a lot of people were not happy. Seventy million people or so, give or take. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of a lot of positive feelings. But seventy nine million people are happier, and that's all that can, and that's all that matters. And um, yeah, the horns at uh, at the Wilmington Delaware press conference and the speech for Joe Biden um was was definitely amazing. And the speech he made, I, I thought it, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And to unite America. Again, I think is something that's um, that really resonated with a lot of people around the world. But Ben, we, we did get you on to chat about your interview with Oya Sharapova yeah. last week at um, uh, for Racket Magazine. It was a wonderful piece and really delved into the mind of uh, of the young lady. And it was such a, a, a wretchedly horrible story. With um, reading every single line, it just seemed to get worse and worse and worse from the start. And um, Talk to us about how how it was in the room at the time and and what the demeanor was like and um, 
how she generally felt. And there was a time where, where you wrote that she had to excuse herself from the room. Um, so talk to us about how, how you went about the interview and, um, and, and what her demeanor was like. Yeah, I found her incredibly compelling. I think it's probably the best word for her throughout. I found, you know, I was pretty gripped by what she was saying. I thought she was very articulate. Her English is not perfect. I mentioned at the beginning of the story. I mean, she does, didn't, she, her friend there was translating for her. So she kind of was about half English, half in Russian. I have had phone conversations with her that are just in English. Her English is fine. But I think she, for wanting to get everything right in this story, she was sort of going back and forth and she could understand everything I said and all my questions and everything pretty much too. Um, but yeah, she was, um, she was a super, super, you know, yeah, compelling. It's what I'll go back to again, just super sort of powerful speaker, I thought, and really uh, set up her story. And, and I obviously got her through with questions that have had her, you know, worked her way through it pretty chronologically. It was pretty, and it's kind of what this piece turned out to. Um, I think it's the sort of cleanest way to do it or something like this. And uh, yeah, I mean, she was, she was very resolute. She was very determined. She really wanted to be heard. And that's one of the, you know, one of the things people sort of questioned maybe, or, or wondered more charitably, like what her motives are. And I think she really just does want her sort of, I think she really does feel like, uh, like a survivor here. And I think she wants to show up people that you can get through things like she said she went through. Yeah, Ben, I just wanted to, I guess probably congratulations probably isn't the right word, but I just wanted to commend you for writing that. Piece. Oh, thank you. It was such a, a great piece of, of storytelling and it was a, a story that really needed to be told. And um, I, like, I can't imagine how, how brave she must have been to have told that story um and and you painted the picture really nicely as well obviously with the the emotion that came with it but there was a line in in your story more like above others that really struck me um that mrs b said where she said i feel so effing guilty that i didn't believe her and i, I felt like that was really poignant because that that to me kind of embodies what needs to change, I think, in, in society towards domestic violence, like not least yeah. intense, that we need to start believing uh, the the accuser rather than sort of going in and saying, you know, what's their motivation or things like that. Yeah, I think I, I, that's definitely that's something that resonated with a lot of people. I was very impressed with how open and, you know, sort of self-critical both Mrs. V in the story and uh, Vassal sort of were about sort of, you know, sort of dragging themselves over the coals or whatever you would say in terms of really, you know, saying like, look, we got this wrong. Like we were, you know, we feel really bad that we got sort of charmous. We we're looking at the wrong things, you know, that we were sort of maybe uh, enamored by, by Zverev's star status or, or celebrity or power or charm, or whatever you want to say. And, and didn't, and didn't weigh her concerns as seriously, even though they, especially Vassal knew had known her for years. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was really struck by how willing they were and they obviously know the rest of the story. And this is, you know, still as long as story as this was, this was not her entire story. Um, there's still more to the end and more to what she came back and, and this, and which is V and, uh, Vassal have been super supportive of her. I mean, she's been staying with them pretty much this whole year, I think in New Jersey, more or less, I believe. Um, so they've really become a, a sort of second family for her and really did help her out even after initially probably fair to say, letting her down by not taking her concerns seriously or, are driving her back uh, to to this bad situation. Yep, and a lot of people coming out on social media saying that they do support her, which is which is absolutely fantastic. We're hoping that more can come out and do the same. But is has she said anything about a possible investigation going into going into the the issue, or uh, is she going to press charges or anything along those lines? Uh, I asked her about that actually after we did the interview, 
Um, and she said that was not her, she doesn't at the moment does not think so to sort of a little bit reserve the right to change her mind on that front, mm-hmm. but said at the moment that she doesn't plan to, um, that she just really wanted her story to get her. She doesn't want anything from him yeah. from, and in, and in terms of like a civil suit, like she doesn't want money would be the obvious sort of thing. You'd probably get in a situation like this or in a, or I guess a criminal situation having him put in jail or something. Yeah. Um, but I think she, she's very, very, and I was, I think I've tried my best to be as, amenable in this situation possible she really does want to do things on her own sort of terms right and i do think that's the thing that people also are trying to understand or to learn about these sort of situations is that not all uh, people who go through something like this um are the same people who are like well why didn't you go to the police like well not everyone wants to go to the police not everyone wants necessarily to see this the person who did this to them um face criminal justice or that's not maybe not, not what would satisfy her that's not what she feels like needs happen some people do feel that way and that's also fine um but for her that was not her priority her her her, she really just wanted to speak out and actually to the point where when she first posted about it on instagram this is obviously this only lasted a little while but when she first posted about it she didn't name sarah it wasn't about necessarily dragging sarah it was more like here's my story about bad things happened to me in new york and people just sort of who followed her who knew who she'd been dating in new york last year could figure it out pretty quickly but it wasn't like i'm here to come get Zverev. That wasn't really her initial approach. It was more that people saw this, took notice, and then she sort of later on confirmed that she was talking about that Zverev. But is it in the in the greater good? Like there, there must need to be some sort of reparations in terms of Zverev. You know, like what is the ATP doing about it? Yeah. Um, you know, what are, what are the ramifications for Zverev here if there are no charges pressed? Because this is an abhorrent crime, um, and if true and if guilty, then surely. Surely there must be some sort of way that he's got to he's got to pay for this because this is some serious damage. I mean, these are serious serious accusations for sure. Um, Zverev has been given a lot of opportunities to sort of deny them, and he really has not done that as thoroughly as the claims would sort of require. I think it's fair to say uh, he's, he gave a sort of blanket like simply not true, and and always oh, been really was really sort of I think put off by that response. He's quoted me several times while we're talking the simply not true line. Um, uh so yeah i i don't know what happens to, i mean i the atp is not super equipped to deal with this um they lag behind a lot of the certainly i know the big north american leagues that have pretty pre-written domestic violence policies built into their bargainings with their player unions and stuff like that tennis is in a situation where it's independent contractors and also where you have to play to get paid right so like i think john worth having this column saying he talked to the nba executive who said that in the NBA, the equivalent, if there was even just the accusation, this sort of fact pattern would be they would suspend a player with pay um, pending investigation, right? But if Zverev gets taken off the tour, then he stops earning money. You know, and, and he's coming up actually on some pretty high earning events. Or one last big high earning event of the season, the World Tour Finals, where he's one of the eight players who qualified. Mm. Um, that's, a, that's a big, big money event for those guys to make it into that field. Uh, so it's maybe not there's nothing in the bylaws that sort of lets them yank him from that competition but the atp has gone much further than that in terms of their sort of lack of action in terms of not even acknowledging this not sort of giving any sort of blanket statement of anything and no, nothing and not even in the sort of basic platitudes of things that i would like to see from them and from sarah himself in terms mm-hmm. of just like the basic you know as hollow as it wants to be like sort of we condemn domestic violence and you know I think these are important issues in society sort of stuff they haven't hit that note at all they've just been completely like this and actually today i did ask them like sort of comment on the no comment. I was like, okay, you're not coming on Zverev, but can you comment on why you're not commenting? I did sort of 
half joking, I said it on Twitter, but I, I do think it's a genuine question. Like, why is this just, do you have a rule that you will not comment on anything involving a player in their personal life? Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't get as much attention because it's obviously nowhere near as high profile player, but Nicholas Basalashvili also was charged in a, in a criminal court in, in the country of Georgia with um, with domestic violence things in, con- in the context of his divorce that's going on. Um, and he's a kid, there's custody battle, I think, over. And so it's a little bit different sort of case. Um, but ATP did not do anything to keep him off tour. I mean, he's still he's still playing. I believe that's ongoing trial right now. I've actually been trying to figure out more about what's going on with Basel Philly just to get context to that uh, that situation. I think that's still going on. There was sort of pre-trial proceedings happening within the last month in terms of which evidence would get included and not included in the trial. Um, so yeah, so I mean, I I, I in, in terms of what kind of consequences Zverev can face, I mean, I do think that he has already lost a lot of fans over this, and I don't know if they'll come back to him, but and we actually, it's interesting with Zverev, he did see this a little bit already with him this summer, with the uh, the thing after Adria Tour, where he was clubbing in Paris, or sorry, clubbing in, clubbing in France and Monaco after um, after being part of Adria Tour and saying he would quarantine that already annoy a lot of people to him or unendeared, whatever the word is for alienated a lot of people. Um, and then, yeah. And then here, um, there's been more people, you know, a lot of like really hardcore Zverev fans, like talking about young fans who like have Zverev like in their Twitter bios as a Twitter name, Twitter, you know, avatar, they're kind of packing up and rebranding themselves mm-hmm. in, in non-Zverev ways. And that's been very striking and dramatic to see. And it's also, I think a testament to the fact that a lot of his, his core fans were, you know, young female fans. Mm-hmm. And I think they're the ones who I think maybe take these these sorts of things most most seriously in this generation where it's come up as really, you know, a post sort of Me Too era to, to broaden it out. Um, so that that's a consequence for him in you know, a sort of reputational, you know, damage there. That's that's real. Um, and then the follow-ons from that in terms of his Nike, sorry, his Adidas contract, I believe, is up for Yes. Uh, renewal i've heard at the end of this year it, it runs out at the end of this year basically and so when he's back in the market what will the market for severe be and he might you know he just made the final pairs made the final us open he's still obviously a great top 10 probably boarding on top five kind of talent player right now um will this make the market hesitant will he get a less uh, a, a, you know a cheaper deal than he would have otherwise if he still gets some deal or well, Diaz has a big german brand still stand behind him and want to make a long-term investment figure this will pass it's an interesting sort of test for for the tennis tennis market um, in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I, I don't know what's going to happen to him in terms of, I mean, obviously the worst case scenario for him is he faces some sort of criminal trial and gets convicted and he goes to U.S. jail. Although it's tough. I mean, that's the other thing with, with you know, I don't know what the sort of burden of proof would be like. I think there probably is, I'm not a lawyer, but there probably is sort of probable cause, I would say, in terms of the circumstantial evidence that Olga has compiled. They could at least get a, a judge to look at this for sure or a grand jury to look at this, however it would go. But there's enough to actually charge him, I don't, I don't know, or to convict, I don't know. And she also has other evidence. I haven't seen all the evidence she has. Um, I've just seen a lot of it. So, you know, we'll see. Um, that's a sort of long rambling answer, but I, it's just, it's just very unclear how it proceeds from here. I mean, his sort of tactic is clearly to not engage and to be sort of like sticking it to who he's pro branding as his haters. That's sort of his plan. Yeah. And I mean, like that, I found that, that his runner up speech in, in Paris incredibly jarring and tone deaf for being like you can't see what a big smile i have under my mask right now but people are trying to come to me because i'm on top like that's just like that's not what this is about at all like i, I thought that was a really a really uh gauche sort of sort of ham-handed way of of, of addressing all this yeah it was 
bizarre and I think probably the word for me then was probably just selfish, I think. Like, sure. I it, it kind of, I don't know, he seems, he just kind of seems really kind of self-centred because, of, of course, we had the incident, well, not incident, but at Roland Garros when he played with the definitely the red flag, I thought was, was yeah. really yeah. staggering. But, yeah, I think, I, I think it's going to be really interesting once we see kind of some normality after, well, not, not necessarily after the pandemic, but going into 2021. I know it was raised on, on NCR um, over, over the weekend that, um, and you mentioned it in, a bit in your last answer, that, that tennis fans can't necessarily show their disapproval in a traditional way. Not yeah, you being, can't get booed right now. Yeah, yeah exactly, in, in the stadium. So I kind of feel like maybe that um, in that sense, the, the ramifications for Alex might be a little bit delayed. Yeah, we'll see. And, you know, it's possible, you know, I, I never know. And this is how we just sort of alluded to the Trump stuff at the beginning, like um, with Trump, not that this is the best allegory at all, but like there was so much that happened in the world, in the news cycle constantly, like people's memory or ten- nothing really stuck of all the things he did over the four years of his term, even before as his candidate. Um, so I don't know if this will be still some people will be talking about when he comes to the Australian Open, you know, I don't know if it's still going to have resonance. If, if, if Zverev sort of, attitude of stonewalling if not addressing things and make it die down like what do you keep asking him about it if he doesn't give an answer repeatedly over and over again i don't know um it'll be an interesting sort of test and it's an interesting time for it i mean obviously with the no fans uh the very little traveling media around uh i mean i don't think i'm going to Melbourne this year skip ahead a bit um next year rather um for the first time since uh, 2011 won't be there so um yeah, so it's uh, it's uh, it's a weird time uh, coming up, and just sort of it does make it with the pandemic and everything. I mean, tennis is not getting a lot of attention in the U.S. at least as an American reporter after the U.S. Open or after French Open. I guess you see there's a bonus slam afterwards. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how how if if once she says her whole story, once she gets the rest out, if this continues to resonate, if it continues to be urgent for him, or if eventually it just becomes sort of a a note in his file and people move on and some people who will be newer to the sport won't know about this right away and it'll be interesting, very interesting to see how like commentators talk about this it's been i think something really challenging and a lot of commentators tennis former players especially are not used to talking about issues like this on air and i used to grappling with this yeah i mean there's a clip of uh the british broadcast the panel if you've seen this of danielle hendikova and a couple of people talking about it and sort of Framing it all and kind of conflating it with the news that he also is having a kid, which is just not really related at all. Yeah. And and sort of framing it all sort of as character development for him. And that's just, it just, it was clunky. Um, so I don't know. I, I really don't know how this pans out. Um, I mean, I do think he's an incredible tennis player and will, you know, it's, he seems unbothered by this on court. It's fair to say it's not like this is, and Basilashvili, by contrast, hasn't won a match all year pretty much since this mm-hmm. happened. Um, but uh, but Zverev is, is still playing well. Seems to be sort of enjoying uh, putting down his detractors or whatever however he phrases it, smiling on. Uh, so maybe he rises on through this, and yeah, it just becomes it becomes tricky. And I, and I just think that the ATP is not served well at all by ignoring it. No, definitely not. Um, and just for a more of a positive note, the ATP Finals is one of the showpiece events coming up. Uh, next week, uh, all the elite eight have been decided. Who is your pick to to win? Well, it's interesting. I mean, like normally, I would say Djokovic. I mean, for this year, but I'm really surprised that Djokovic didn't get a slam in the last couple of months. Like, mm-hmm. you know, 
the odds is you told me that Djokovic would play both the U.S. Open and the French Open and win neither of them. Uh, it's pretty stunning. Obviously, we all know what happened at the U.S. Open. It was a, a pretty unusual exit, and he, by all means, probably would have won yeah. that tournament, I think, had he yeah. uh, aimed that ball a meter to the left. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's uh, Djokovic is my pick, I think, still. Um, but that, that loss in, in the French Open final was pretty pretty jarring. I mean, yeah. Just seeing him get absolutely just like not competitive in that match, I really did not see that coming. Yeah, um, I think people people's picks were pretty 50-50 on who would win that match. I think rightly so, because Djokovic had been so good all year and had beaten Rafa in a lot of big matches recently. And so that kind of one-sided result, I, I don't know how much that shook Djokovic or how much that emboldened the rest of the field against him or what, but um, my lazy pick in 2020 has always been, been Djokovic, and it's mostly served me well. So I'll, I'll pick Djokovic again here. But we'll see. I mean, Zverev's playing really well. Medvedev is good to see Medvedev have a yeah. resurgence. Because he's actually kind of the kind of the the sort of um, the one kind of limping into London. He yeah. didn't really do very much in 2020. Actually, he was getting by on a lot of 2019 reserve points. Yeah. Uh, but it was nice to see him pick up some uh, uh, some a real credible title in, at Paris Bercy to to give himself some momentum. So it's an interesting field. Um, you know, with the exception of, uh, I mean, I think it's I, I can't really make a case for Schwartzman winning, and honestly. Nadal, I actually think it's a pretty long shot player because yeah. he's just he's never won this tournament. And all the times he's played, he's never won the, the London or the World Tour Finals. He's never won Paris Bercy. He's not a great indoor player um, historically, and it's just this time of year. Even this is a very different calendar. Um, so I, I pick that's way too long an answer. Sorry, but I, I pick I pick Djokovic. But um, nothing, not too much would would really shock me. Yeah, fair enough, especially after Vienna as well with uh, Lorenzo Sonigo coming out and destroying but, him 6 2 6 Yeah, that really did seem like a good old-fashioned tank. I mean, I do think that he got his 90 points or whatever he needed to get the yeah. lock up of the year at number one and then was out of there. Yeah, no, nah, um, fair enough. So, which I, I, I mean, I just don't think, and he kind of admitted that afterwards, which is not yeah. really, it's not, it's kind of out of character for him to play, to do that. But, yeah. um, you know, but one and two or whatever it was to Sonigo, that's just, that's, that's too far out there to make sense. You got yeah. you kind of got to discard that data, that data point. Yep, definitely unheard of. But Ben Rothenberg, you're an absolute superstar of a journal. And what a piece it was uh, on Racket, Racket Magazine. And uh, it's great to have you on the show. I know you don't like getting paid too many compliments, but we're going to pay them to you anyway. We've got to well, keep... superstars, superstars a bit much, but, but thank you for <laughs> thank you for the kind words. So thank you thank you for your words about the piece. Also, thank you to, to Olya again for her openness and vulnerability and, and bravery and coming out and telling all this. And so yeah, thanks to her for... Any sort of any sort of praise the piece gets is all due to her. Yep. Her yeah, her making that possible. One hundred percent. And she's been very brave over the last couple of weeks and fingers crossed we can get to the bottom of what happened. But Ben Rothenberg, thank you very much. Thank you, Al. Thanks, Sean. Ben Rothenberg there joining us on Breakpoint Podcast. Jeez, he's become very popular on this one. We've uh, we've had him on three times already this year, and um, he's he's an absolutely wonderful talent um, to have on the show. And his uh, podcast, No Challenges Remaining, you can follow that on Twitter as well. But um, Joel, yeah, pretty harrowing um, to say the least. It's um, it's a fairly interesting topic that I hope we can uh, we can get to the bottom of very soon. Yeah, very much so. And uh, like we were saying before, Val, um, this the ATP, uh, Zverev, really tennis as a whole. We, we we can't pretend that this isn't happening. It it needs needs to be knocked on the head, and the powers that be need to be at the at the forefront of this and, and really uh, lead by example. Really. Yep, I do agree. And um, look, moving on from from this negative note, it could be well. 
COVID is pretty negative and it's caused a lot of problems throughout this year with scheduling for sport with the AFL moving to Queensland, the NRL moving outside of Victoria, F1, the EPL, all, all with no crowds. Um, same with American sports as well. It's, uh, it's wrecked pretty much all sporting fans' uh, dreams of attending uh, live events this season but, or this year and the past few months and probably will go into next year as well, it seems, with the Australian Open looking as though there could be a possibility of having all the leading events in Melbourne, depending on what happens with state governments and also COVID outbreaks around the country in certain states. So we're not sure what will happen yet. There will be a quarantine period. There will be a bubble. Um, Scott Spitz spoke to Craig Tiley last week in, uh, for The Age, and he is going to join us now to have a chat about what he took from the conversation. And our second very special guest on today's show, Joel, is a man that I know very well and have worked with at The Age uh, for a few years now, and he's a wonderful, wonderful man and a fantastic journalist at that. His name is Scott Spitz, a journalist for The Age and uh, a very, very avid tennis man. Scott, thanks so much for joining us here on the show, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Oh, good on you, Joel. That's a very warm welcome. Thanks very much. It's um, good to be on board and to chat a bit of tennis as the, as the summer approaches. I know it does approach, and uh, your your piece in the Age last week, uh, deciphering what or discussing what Craig Tiley said um, about possible summer of tennis entirely in Melbourne. It is possible. Um, tell us about the interview and and what you took from from uh, Tiley's comments. Yeah, sure. Look, that was that was the main takeout from that interview with with Craig. Um, there's so much to play at at the moment, and it really is hitting a bit of a uh, bit of nitty gritty at the moment with mm. with where they get to on decisions. Uh, that day, Craig and Tennis Australia basically went on a bit of a, a little bit of an offensive to um, to put their case forward. They spoke to myself and, and various media outlets about what they hope. They basically are looking to put uh, a bit of pressure on the various state governments to uh, come up with decisions and 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 key decisions around quarantine requirements uh, and crowd numbers, but more importantly, quarantine requirements for players. Uh, they're hoping that some of those key questions can get resolved in about a week by the end of this week or maybe even next Monday the latest. So, um, look, TA and Craig, and I've spoken to him a few times through the year, they've been they've been planning around scenarios since the pandemic hit in March and they went into uh, overdrive with uh, already planning on the 2021 Oz Open then, of course. Um, but it's getting to crunch time. That's the message. It definitely is. And D-Day is looming. And if... The state governments haven't given their approval or haven't given their message by a certain time. Will Tylee just make the call ultimately to cancel whatever state's tennis schedule has and bring it into Melbourne? Yeah, look, look that's, that's, that's a very real scenario. So the, the main complicating factor here is that TA, with events in various jurisdictions, with events in various states, are dealing with multiple state governments all at the same time. And... The scenario where they say, okay, we, we play everything in Melbourne for the whole summer uh, is a very real one. In some ways, it's actually, a, it would probably be a very sensible decision because it just makes uh, the issue and requirements to, to manage the summer a whole lot simpler. It means that players come to Melbourne, they don't go anywhere else, they spend their time in quarantine. Once they exit quarantine, they're regarded as any other Melbourneian. They're free to walk the streets, abide by the rules, where they're masks in restaurants, but it just would, it just would less complicate an already very complicated situation. 
Yeah, for sure. And of course, as we know, we do have a lot of tournaments, Scott, here in Australia. And the ATP Cup now, as we know, is a massive tournament with a lot of players competing at, uh, at that event. But um, I guess just from uh, like an experience point of view, you having you know been at the ground, spent a lot of time there, uh, like, do you expect that, um, that Melbourne could potentially, if we need to go there, could house all these events? And like, do you expect that maybe um, you know, someone like Kuyong could potentially provide a bit of a chop out? And Because, um, of course, we do have... Like, I'm not sure if this has even sort of been discussed or anything, but we have all the, like, the smaller events, like the challenges and stuff as well. That's a really good question. Um, I think what's central to all of this is that they are protecting the Oz Open almost at any other cost. That doesn't change in any format in any way. I mean, obviously, we will see fewer spectators and fewer... Yeah fewer fans on the grounds, but we might, and I, I don't know, I don't have real visibility in this, we might see an ATK, ATP Cup that's actually smaller than what we normally see. It might be with as few as eight or ten nations that compete. Um, it's obviously in its very embryonic stages, so they, I think there's, I think there's room for flexibility everywhere. They might, there's no reason why they have to commit to the same size of tournament before, but, but I think your point about, about Kuyong is a valid one, because once players are free and cleared from quarantine and, and, and undergo regular COVID testing and pass each their, their testing each day and into each ground with a with a temperature test, they can play anywhere. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I think I think certainly uh, um, Melbourne versus say New York or or London, obviously Wimbledon didn't, didn't go ahead or, or Paris. So I think we've got a really big advantage uh, when it comes to the probable arrangements for quarantine and as we know that is is probably a, a paramount issue for the players obviously they want to be able to practice uh in the bubble while they're uh quarantine quarantining supposedly but i feel like uh melbourne has a really big advantage uh, and the ao has a really big advantage because the cbd is actually so close to the grounds yeah absolutely that that question about what players can do in quarantine is is the big big question um that the uh, the organisers have gone as far as to, to ask the question about playing tournament play while serving a quarantine period, as we've seen in a few locations around the world this year. Um, that is highly unlikely to happen. Um, they are pushing hard to get situations where players can obviously maintain conditioning and get on the practice court, maybe limit it to even an hour a day, um, and the rest of the time stuck back at the hotel, maybe with access to a gym. Um this is this is the key point. I think I think if we've got a situation where um, health officials limit players to to not doing anything but leaving the hotel and particularly not getting on a practice court for for a fourteen day period, that's going to be fascinating to watch. And that will mean uh, one. I mean a couple of things. Players will obviously arrive very early to ensure they get enough practice time before tournament play. Um, but I think in you know, that scenario, you would see some players who just choose not to come this year that they they decide that Oz is not on the agenda this summer yep and arriving so early is also a problem for the lower ranked players who don't make that much money so even if they're in if you're in qualifying you're ranked in the 300s it's going to be an issue actually forking up for a hotel or forking out for a hotel for two weeks so that's I think that's probably one of the biggest issues of them all and we saw um Peter Polanski from Canada um actually put on Twitter that um like things are actually going to be really difficult and the the players that are outside that top 150 aren't at an advantage at all. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, Bell. Obviously, money speaks many languages yeah. here. And um, 
tennis Australia is going to be forging, uh, paying a lot of expenses here and obviously a lot less revenue with the tournament with, with fewer spectators. Um, but you're right. There, there, there's, at the end of the day, these, these batman players have another hurdle to overcome to, um, to spend more time on the road to, to potentially, you know, not have Christmas at home, you know, um, a lot of these guys, as you know, they're used to, to doing it hard, but, but, but you're right, you know, um, it's going to be very difficult and it's going to be expensive, but, but it also might mean that um, some players, you know, outside of the hundred, they might they might have to see this as opportunity. They might see, some well, okay, I can spend, I can spend more time in Australia. I can spend, you know, there's even talk of TA pushing to have uh, tournaments beyond the Open in Australia. So you know that you might see might come across players who are effectively willing to relocate for a period of time, and, and you know Melbourne becomes a home for a few months. So. There's a whole lot of a whole lot of scenarios there, but but your point about about it being tough for a player, battling players on the tour is, is absolutely valid. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned all that, Scott, because um, Val and I were talking a lot about when the U.S. Open came around. Certainly, in the lead up to it, we were talking a lot about the idea of the asterisk, and there's no doubt that a lot of sporting events this year there's been a lot of talk about about that, and I think just just naturally, um, most events that have happened this year, I think regardless of whether we have, like we physically draw the asterisks, asterisks next to it or not, I think there's always just going to be that kind of overarching vibe of 2020 was such a weird year that, you know, we have to look at things a little bit differently. But um, I guess what I wanted to ask you is that, you know, Val and I were talking about the US Open having left a legacy of opportunity. And you did speak there about a lot of um, potentially players that may not necessarily get a, get a look in if certain players choose not to come out here. So it could be a bit similar for the AO. It could actually really leave uh, a bit of a lasting legacy of providing some, some much needed opportunity for some players that do decide to come. Yeah, completely. Um, I think um, if my memory serves and corrected, the, the U S didn't have a qualifying period. They didn't, they didn't get right. Yeah. yeah. So all of a sudden um, there was scope there for players to, to, to get into the tournament due to, you know, withdrawals. So I think, um, I think there are a couple of examples of players who, who had that in mind and, and that was part of their decision-making. Why they, while they decided to go to the US, they saw, you know, half a chance to, to sneak in the draw at the last minute. So, um, yeah, look, I think it's um, it's going to be fascinating to watch. It really is. And I think all of, all of us are going to be really excited to see how it all does play out when the announcements are made. But, Scott, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. You've been an absolute pleasure to work with over the years and you, you've taught me a great deal um, over my... Uh, short uh, short career so far so it's an absolute pleasure to have you on this podcast and um, stay safe stay well and we'll chat to you very soon good on you Val. thanks Joel look forward to perhaps uh, seeing you guys at Melbourne Park in January if not sooner fingers crossed we are there Scott Spitz joining us on Breakpoint Podcast Spitz he's a wonderful man um, he's, uh, he's taught me a lot throughout my career so far and uh, in the digital sense of things and um, he, he's a wonderful man and a great great tennis writer and he, he really knows his stuff so it was great to have him on the podcast finally and uh joel uh, look uh, selfish me thinks can we please have all the all the events in melbourne please <laughs> that would be great imagine having a month of tennis in melbourne um especially for us we can just take the podcast on location hopefully and uh and get yeah. ourselves in and just be like um hey roger roger Come over here and uh, and, and oh. chat on chat on Breakpoint podcast with with uh, Uncle Val and Joel. Um, 
Maybe we should get Rafa. Uh, yeah. Head all, head all three points. Uh, no, we'll just get um, we'll just get Elliot Loney on. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you wouldn't know the difference. He always no. does Rafa that Rafa does. Yeah, I think he does. Um, I really think he does. But he um, he enjoys the um. I think Rafa's seen it and in, enjoys it too. So uh, we yeah. should get Elliot Loney as Rafa interviewing Rafa. <laughs> That's something that Channel Nine need to work on because that would be genuinely hilarious so look we should uh, we should um get on them to try and make this happen but look it is time for benoit of the week joel and it is one of our favorite segments and uh, and we do know why because we do love benoit and you know what this is the week i'm gonna try and get him on for our show next week maybe and see if we can we can get the great frenchman he's on holidays his year is done and uh, he's been partying out. I don't know where he's been partying, but uh, he, his mate seems to have a good time dancing and smoking a cigarette. So I'm not sure what Benoit's doing. If he's he shouldn't be smoking as an athlete, but uh, he might be uh, might be dabbling in a little bit of off season fun. Who knows? But um, Joel, shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's been doing shots at clubs, and uh, Benoit I reckon would be a very 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 big party animal, which would be hilarious. I'd love to go out for a drink with him <laughs> and see where the night ends up. But um, Joel. Benoit of the week this week. We have our first back-to-back. We do have our first back-to-back. Now, I was originally going to head down the political route with this one because, of course, we've had the US election during the week. Joe Biden um, ended up getting up and um, the big fat orange twisty is getting the boot, which is <laughs> freaking fantastic. Um, but no, um, it's going to Alexander Zverev again. And the reason for that, we've already spoken about it ad nauseum on this particular podcast, but... What he said after the Bercy final was just, honestly, just a, a slap in the face, really, to to everything that's going on, to Olya's bravery. So he gets uh, a second Benoit in a row. Yep, I think so. Actually, he's uh, he's now on three, so he's taken out he's taken outright second place in the Benoit of the year combination. So he's overtaken me, Kyrgios, and Benoit. I don't. I really don't know how I'm on. Uh, how I'm on two. Um, there's been a couple of really, really slow news weeks in the tennis world, and uh, somehow I've managed to get myself onto two. There was one week where I had a really bad and good day, so I will. I'll. Uh, I'll, I'll give myself that one. I can't remember what happened. Uh, what happened for the second one? But um, yeah, no, hundred percent deserves it. Um, absolutely, completely nonsense. What he said. Um, completely arrogant as well, and. Uh, Look, it seems as though the top two, Djokovic and Zverev, have uh, have gotten the lead in the Benoit of the Year because of sheer arrogance and sheer just uh, non-admittance of of uh, incorrect behaviour. So, look, we'll basically, see. Basically, the root of it is just being a self-centred tool. That's all that we can say, really. Yep, pretty much. Um, but, Joel, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. No, no worries, mate. It's been a good one. It's been an important one. So I hope our listeners uh, took something out of it. I hope so as well. Remember, you can follow us on Breakpoint Podcast or at Breakpoint Pod on Twitter and uh, Facebook, Breakpoint Podcast, Instagram, Breakpoint Podcast as well. There, you can subscribe to us on Wooshka, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts as well. We're on there wherever you get your shows from. You can find us. Just search us on the Google machine and uh, and we should be there. But it's been Val Febo and Joel Frucci here on Breakpoint uh, we'll catch you next week. Hopefully, we'll have a little bit more on this very story and hopefully we might be able to put it to bed very soon. But enjoy your week, tennis fans. ATP Finals coming right up.